Chapter 4, Part 2 of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Kilbird. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 4 Youthful Propagandism. The Westminster Review. Part two. It was my father's opinions which gave the distinguishing character to the Benthamic or utilitarian propagandism of that time. They fell, singularly, scattered from him in many directions, but they flowed from him in a continued stream, principally in three channels. One was through me, the only mind directly formed by his instruction, and through whom considerable influence was excited over various young men, who became, in their turn, propagandists. A second was through some of the Cambridge contemporaries of Charles Austin, who, either initiated by him, or under the gentlemanal impulse which he gave, had adopted many opinions allied to those of my father, and some of the more considerable of whom afterwards sought my father's acquaintance, and frequented his house. Among these may be mentioned strutt afterwards lord belper and the present lord romley with whose eminent father sir samuel my father had of old been on terms of friendship the third channel was that of a younger generation of cambridge undergraduates contemporary not with austin but with elton took who were drawn to that estimable person by affinity of opinions and introduced to him by my father the most notable of these was charles buller various other persons individually received and transmitted a considerable amount of my father's influence for example black as before mentioned and fun black most of these however were accounted only partial allies fun black for instance was always divergent from us on many important points but indeed there was by no means complete unanimity among any portion of us, nor had any of us adopted implicitly all of my father's opinions. For example, although his Essay on Government was regarded probably by all of us as a masterpiece of political wisdom, our adhesion by no means extended to the paragraph of it in which he maintains that women may, consistently with good government, be excluded from the suffrage because their interest is the same as that of men. From this doctrine I, and all those who formed my chosen associates, most positively dissented. It is due to my father to say that he denied having intended to affirm that women should be excluded any more than men under the age of forty, concerning whom he maintained in the very next paragraph an exactly similar thesis. He was, as he truly said, not discussing whether the suffrage had better be restricted, but only, assuming that it is to be restricted, what is the utmost limit of restriction which does not necessarily involve a sacrifice of the securities for good government. But I thought then, and I have always thought since, that the opinion which he acknowledged, no less than that which he disclaimed, is as great an error as any of those against which the essay was directed, that the interest of women is included in that of men 
exactly as much as the interest of subjects is included in that of kings and no more and that every reason which exists for giving the suffrage to anybody demands that it should not be withheld from women this was also the general opinion of the younger proselytes and it is pleasant to be able to say that mr bentham on this important point was wholly on our side but though none of us probably agreed in every respect with my father his opinions as i have said before were the principal element which gave its colour and character to the little group of young men who were the first propagandors of what was afterwards called philosophic radicalism their mode of thinking was not characterized by benthamism in any sense which was relation to bentham as a chief or guide but rather by a combination of bentham's point of view with that of the modern political economy and with the hartleyan metaphysics malthus population principle was quite as much a banner and point of union among us as any opinion especially belonging to bentham this great doctrine originally brought forward as an argument against the indefinite improvability of human affairs we took up with an ardent zeal in the contrary sense as indicating the sole means of realizing that improvability by securing full employment at high wages to the whole laboring population through a voluntary restriction of the increase of their numbers the other leading characteristic of the creed which we held in common with my father may be stated as follows in politics an almost unbounded confidence in the efficacy of two things representative government and complete freedom of discussion so complete was my father's reliance on the influence of reason over the minds of mankind whenever it is allowed to reach them that he felt as if all would be gained if the whole population were taught to read if all sorts of opinions were allowed to be addressed to them by word and in writing and if by means of the suffrage they could nominate a legislature to give effect to the opinions they adopted he thought that when the legislature no longer represented a class interest it would aim at the general interest honestly and with adequate wisdom since the people would be sufficiently under the guidance of educated intelligence to make in general a good choice of persons to represent them and having done so to leave it to those whom they had chosen a liberal discretion accordingly aristocratic rule the government of the few in any of its shapes being in his eyes the only thing which stood between mankind and an administration of their affairs by the best wisdom to be found among them was the object of his sternest disapprobation and a democratic suffrage the principal article of his political creed not on the ground of liberty rights of man or any of the phrases more or less significant by which up to that time democracy had usually been defended but as the most essential of securities for good government in this too he held fast only to what he deemed essentials he was comparatively indifferent to monarchical or republican forms far more so than bentham to whom a king in the character of corruptor-general appeared necessarily very obnoxious next to the aristocracy an established church or corporation of priests as being by position the great depravers of religion and interested in opposing the progress of the human mind was the object of his greatest detestation 
though he disliked no clergyman personally who did not deserve it and he was on terms of sincere friendship with several in ethics his moral feelings were energetic and rapid on all points which he deemed important to human well-being while he was supremely indifferent in opinion though his indifference did not show itself in personal conduct to all those doctrines of the common morality which he thought had no foundation but in asceticism and priestcraft he looked forward for example to a considerable increase of freedom in the relations between the sexes though without pretending to define exactly what would be or ought to be the precise condition of that freedom his opinion was connected in him with no sensuality either of a theoretical or of a practical kind he anticipated on the contrary as one of the beneficial effects of increased freedom that the imagination would no longer dwell upon the principal objects of life a perversion of the imagination and feelings which he regarded as one of the deepest-seated and most pervading evils in the human mind in psychology his fundamental doctrine was the formation of all human character by circumstances through the universal principle of association and the consequent unlimited possibility of improving the moral and intellectual condition of mankind by education of all his doctrines none was more important than this or needs more to be insisted on unfortunately there is none which is more contradictory to the prevailing tendencies of speculation both in his time and since these various opinions were seized upon with youthful fanaticism by the little knot of young men of whom i was one and we put into them a secular spirit from which in intention at least my father was wholly free what we or rather a phantom substituted in the place of us were sometimes by a ridiculous exaggeration called by others namely a school some of us for a time really hoped and aspired to me the french philosophies of the eighteenth century were the examples we sought to imitate and we hoped to accomplish no less result no one of us went in so great excesses in his boyish ambition as i did which might be shown by many particulars were it not for a useless waste of space and time all this however is probably only the outside of our existence or at least the intellectual part alone and no part than one side of that in attempting to penetrate inward and give any indication of what we were as human beings i must be understood as speaking only of myself of whom alone i can speak from sufficient knowledge and i do not believe that the picture would suit any of my companions without many and great modifications i conceive that the description so often given of a benthamite as a mere reasoning machine though extremely inapplicable to most of those who have been designated by that title was during two or three years of my life not altogether untrue of me it was perhaps as applicable to me as it can well be to any one just entering into life to whom the common objects of desire must in general have at least the attraction of novelty there is nothing very extraordinary in this fact no youth of the age i then was can be expected to be more than one thing and this 
was the thing I happened to be. Ambition and desire of distinction I had in abundance, and zeal for what I thought the good of mankind was my strongest sentiment, mixing with and colouring all others. But my zeal was as yet little else, at that period of my life, than zeal for speculative opinions. It had not its root in genuine benevolence or sympathy with mankind, though these qualities had their due place in my ethical standard. Nor was it connected with any high enthusiasm for ideal nobleness. Yet of this feeling I was imaginatively very susceptible, but there was at that time an intermission of its natural ailment, poetical culture, while there was a superabundance of the discipline antagonistic to it that of mere logic and analysis. Add to this that, as already mentioned, my father's teachings tended to the undervaluing of feeling, it was not that he was himself cold-hearted or insensible. I believe it was rather from the contrary quality. He thought that feeling could take care of itself, that there was sure to be enough of it if actions were properly cared about offended by the frequency with which in ethical and philosophical controversies feeling is made the ultimate reason and justification of conduct instead of being itself called in for a justification while in practice actions the effect of which on human happiness is mischievous are defended as being required by feeling and the character of a person of feeling obtains a credit for desert which he thought only due to actions. He had a real impatience of attributing praise to feeling, or to any but the most sparing reference to it, either in the estimation of persons or in the discussion of things. In addition to the influence which this characteristic in him had on me and others, we found all the opinions to which we attained most importance consistently attacked on the ground of feeling. Utility was denounced as cold calculation, political economy as hard-hearted anti-population doctrines as repulsive to the natural feelings of mankind. We retorted by the word sentimentality, which along with declamation and vague generalities served us as common items of approbation. Although we were generally in the right, as against those who were opposed to us, the effect was that of the cultivation of feeling, except the feelings of public and private duty, was not in much esteem among us, and had very little place in the thoughts of most of us, myself in particular. What we particularly thought of was to alter people's opinions, to make them believe according to evidence, and to know what was their real interest, which, when they once knew, they would, we thought, by the instruments of opinion, enforce a regard to it upon one another, while fully recognizing the superior excellence of unselfish benevolence and love of justice, we did not expect the regeneration of mankind from any direct action on those sentiments, but from the effect of educated intellect, enlightening the selfish feelings. Although this last is prodigiously important as a means of improvement in the hands of those who are themselves impelled by nobler principles of action, I do not believe that any one of the survivors of the Benthamites 
or utilitarians of that day now relies mainly upon it to the general amendment of human conduct from this neglect both in theory and in practice of the cultivation of feeling naturally resulted among other things an undervaluing of poetry and of imagination generally as an element of human nature it is or was part of the popular notion of the benthamites that they are enemies of poetry this was partly true of bentham himself he used to say that all poetry is misrepresentation but in the sense in which he said it the same might have been said of all impressive speech of all representation or inclusion more oratorical in its character than a sum in arithmetic an article of bentham's in the first number of the westminster review in which he offered as an explanation of something which he disliked in moore that mr moore is a poet and therefore is not a reasoner did a good deal to attach the notion of hating poetry to the writers of the review but the truth was that many of us were great readers of poetry bingham himself had been a writer of it while as regards me and the same thing might be said of my father the correct statement would be not that i disliked poetry but that i was theoretically indifferent to it i disliked any sentiments in poetry which i should have disliked in prose and that included a great deal and i was wholly blind to its place in human culture as a means of educating the feelings but i was personally very susceptible to some kinds of it in the most sectarian period of my benthamism i happened to look into pope's essay on man and though every opinion in it was contrary to mine i well remembered how powerfully it acted on my imagination perhaps at the time poetical composition of any higher type than eloquent discussion in verse might not have produced a similar effect upon me at all events i seldom gave it an opportunity this however was a mere passive state long before i had enlarged in any considerable degree the basis of my intellectual creed i had obtained in the natural course of my mental progress poetic culture of the most valuable kind by means of reverential admiration for the lives and characters of heroic persons especially the heroes of philosophy the same inspiring effect which so many of the benefactors of mankind have left on record that they had experienced from plutarch's lives was produced on me by plato's pictures of socrates and by some modern biographers above all condorcet's life of turgot a book well calculated to rouse the best sort of enthusiasm since it contains one of the wisest and noblest of lives delineated by one of the wisest and noblest of men the heroic virtue of these glorious representatives of the opinions with which i sympathized deeply affected me and i perpetually recurred to them as others do to a favourite poet when needing to be carried up into the more elevated regions of feeling and thought i may observe by the way that this book cured me of my sectarian follies the two or three pages beginning il regarde trate secte comme nuisible and explaining why turgot always kept himself perfectly distinct from the encyclopedists sank deeply into my mind i left off designating myself and others as utilitarians and by the pronoun we or any other collective designation i ceased to affecture sectarianism 
my real inward sectarianism i did not get rid of till later and much more gradually by the end of eighteen twenty four beginning of eighteen twenty five mr bentham having lately got back his papers on evidence from m dumont whose traite de perdis judiciaires grounded on them was then first completed and published resolved to have them printed in the original and bethought himself of me as capable of preparing them for the press in the same manner as his book of fallacies had been recently edited by bingham i gladly undertook this task and it occupied nearly all my leisure for about a year exclusive of the time afterwards spent in seeing the five large volumes through the press mr bentham had begun the treatise three times at considerable intervals each time in a different manner and each time without reference to the preceding two of the three times he had gone over nearly the whole subject these three masses of manuscript it was my business to condense into a single treatise adapting the one last written as the groundwork and incorporating with it as much of the two others as it had not completely superseded i had also to unroll such of bentham's involved and parenthetical sentences as seemed to overpass by their complexity the measure of what readers were likely to take the pains to understand it was further mr bentham's particular desire that i should from myself endeavour to supply any lacunae which he had left and at his insistence i read for this purpose the most authoritative treatise on the english law of evidence and commented on a few of the objectionable points of the english rules which had escaped bentham's notice i also replied to the objections which had been made to some of his doctrines by reviewers of dumas book and added a few supplementary remarks on some of the more abstract parts of the subject such as the theory of improbability and impossibility the controversial part of these editorial editions was written in a more assuming tone than became one so young and inexperienced as i was but indeed i had never contemplated coming forward in my own person and as an anonymous editor of bentham i fell into the tone of my author not thinking it unsuitable to him or to the subjects however it might be so to me my name as editor was put to the book after it was printed mr bentham's positive desire which i in vain attempted to persuade him to forego the time occupied in this editorial work was extremely well employed in respect to my own improvement the rationale of judicial evidence is one of the richest in matter of all bentham's productions the theory of evidence being in itself one of the most important of his subjects and ramifying into most of the others the book contains very fully developed a great proportion of his best thoughts while among more special things it comprises the most elaborate exposure of the vices and defects of english law as it then was which is to be found in his works not confined to the law of evidence but including by way of illustrative episode the entire procedure or practice of westminster hall the direct knowledge therefore which i obtained from the book and which was imprinted upon me much more thoroughly than it could have been by mere reading was itself no small acquisition 
but this occupation did for me what might seem less to be expected it gave a great start to my powers of composition everything which i wrote subsequently to this editorial employment was markedly superior to anything that i had written before it bentham's later style as the world knows was heavy and cumbersome from the excess of a good quality the love of precision which made him introduce clause within clause into the heart of every sentence that the reader might receive into his mind the modifications and qualifications simultaneously with the main proposition and the habit grew on him until his sentences became to those not accustomed to them most laborious reading but his earlier style that of the fragment on government plan of a judicial establishment etc is a model of liveliness and ease combined with fullness of matter scarcely ever surpassed and of his earlier style there was mainly striking specimens in the manuscripts on evidence all of which i endeavoured to preserve so long a course of this admirable writing had a considerable effect upon my own and i added to it by the assiduous reading of other writers both french and english who combined in a remarkable degree ease with force such as goldsmith fielding pascal voltaire and courier through these influences my writing lost the jejuneness of my early compositions the bones and cartilage began to clothe themselves with flesh and the style became at times lively and almost light end of chapter four part two recording by gary gilbert